Welcome back, Warriors. Quay Neen Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about the front lines of indigenous resistance, resurgence and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. Today's podcast is with the patriarch of indigenous truth, justice, and reconciliation. He is literally one of my heroes. I'm his number one fan. I have been following him ever since I even heard his name, and I cannot wait for you to hear all about his life journey and his important work, if you haven't already. So stay tuned. This is going to be a fantastic podcast. Welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast. My name is Pam Palmeter and I am your host. And today's podcast is literally probably going to be the best podcast ever. It's definitely going to go down in history. I get to talk to somebody and you can tell how excited I am. I get to talk to somebody who has literally changed the landscape when it comes to Indigenous truth, justice and reconciliation, but also public education, which has been so key. He's also one of my heroes like I said at the beginning, and someone whose opinion and analysis on Indigenous issues, I deeply, deeply respect. The amazing, incredible, awesome Dr. Honorable Murray Sinclair has uh, done so much. I mean, ever since he graduated law school and went on to become a lawyer and a judge and a senator and everything else, he's, he's done more work in his lifetime than I could do in 10 lifetimes. He was, for people who don't know, Manitoba's first Indigenous judge that was appointed in Manitoba and only the second in Canada. He first started as associate judge, chief associate chief judge of Manitoba's provincial court, which is pretty awesome. And then he was the justice of the Court of Queen's Bench and went on to do so much important work. Like we would literally have to talk for 24 hours just to get it all out of there. He's done so much public education. And in addition to winning a ton of awards, he's also has like 19 on docs or it could even be more at this point. So we should just like put 19, like as in squared by his name. And He's also dedicated to culture and ceremony and language and tradition, which just makes him like so well-rounded and so grounded in who we are as Indigenous peoples and especially Anishinaabeg that makes me really use him as a goalpost or guidepost on what he thinks on things. Those are things that I should really consider, especially if it's something that maybe I didn't agree on before because he's changed my mind more than one time. But before I go into the quick and dirty interrogation of my hero, welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast, Honorable Murray Sinclair. Uh, well, no pressure. <laughs> but <laughs> thanks, Pam. It's really a wonderful introduction. So I appreciate being here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I think we're going to have an interesting talk. 
yeah, me too. And I'll, you know, try not to shoot the questions at you a thousand miles a minute, but I really appreciate you taking the time because I know that even though you are retired, you're still doing so much other work and we hear about you in the media, you engage with the public all the time and you've just made so many contributions. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I would love it if you could introduce yourself, the First Nation that you're from, maybe a little bit about your Anishinaabe culture. That's my spirit name. Um, I'm from the St. Peter's First Nation initially, signed Treaty 1 in, in 1870. Uh, I was born and raised in the old St. Peter's area along the Red River. Uh, went to school there um, and uh, went to high school in the town of Selkirk, which is right nearby. Um, graduated from there. I was raised by my grandparents uh, because my mother passed away when I was a year old. Uh, my father, who had uh, been in the war and had been badly injured, uh, suffered his... his uh, trauma from the war as well as a mine cave-in that he experienced and of course the loss of the woman that he loved and uh, and he um, he left us he went on his own uh, and uh, so my grandparents took us in and raised us I had two brothers and a sister and um, and she created a child welfare system as I found a saying when she um, she was she was sixty three, and my grandfather was sixty nine, and um, they were a little too old to be taking care of such young children. So she assigned one of her daughters to each of us. So and she had eight daughters, and so uh, three of the daughters were assigned to us. Um, my youngest brother was assigned to an aunt. Uh, I was assigned to one of my aunts, uh, Josephine, who was a teacher. My sister was assigned to an aunt and my oldest brother. Uh, he was kept uh, with my grandfather, so he uh, he was uh, kept with my grandfather in order to work with him and learn from him. So uh, we were raised in, in that kind of a, an environment. And uh, one of the things that uh, being raised by a teacher aunt is that uh, she teaches you the uh, respect for knowledge, respect for learning, and uh, love of education. And, and I, I picked that up very quickly. Um, and uh, we had a, a large extended family. Um, at our last family gathering, I think there were 300 cousins uh, who were there. Um, <clears throat> most of the older people now passed on. Um, but uh, all in the uh, all gathered in the St. Peter's area. So uh, I was um, lucky to be able to go to law school at some point uh, uh, after my grandmother passed away. I stayed with her until she um, had passed on and took care of her. And then uh, I went to law school and uh, was going to become a lawyer and and uh, practiced law for about eight years, and then I was appointed a judge in uh, provincial court. And then uh, almost immediately after being appointed a judge, I was appointed to chair the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in Manitoba. And I did that for uh, almost four years. And then <clears throat> we went 
into sitting as a regular judge. Um, I also did the pediatric cardiac surgery inquiry, looking at the deaths of uh, 12 babies at the Health Sciences Center. Uh, and then and, uh, then I was appointed to the Court of Queens Bench, and I was asked if I would uh, chair the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which had been created by the Residential School Settlement Agreement. Uh, initially, I said no. Um, I had been um, affected very deeply by the inquiry into uh, the deaths of the babies. And uh, so emotionally, I was still struggling with that. And uh, I thought, there's other people that can do this. And so I uh, suggested a few names. And, uh, and the uh, commission started uh, under... Uh, Justice Harry to form, uh, but it didn't last too long. The commissioners couldn't get along, and they um, they all quit by October of that year, uh, or shortly thereafter. And so I was asked if I would take over the reins of the commission again, and I finally agreed to do that um, because I knew the House of Survivors had been so disappointed by the the first commission not not picking up on its progress and and moving ahead. And so uh, I felt that responsibility and off I went. Um, I, I insisted on the right to um, name the other two commissioners and we set up a process by which we did our, went about doing our work. So all of that is to say that uh, uh, while I didn't particularly set out to have the kind of career that I had, um, a lot of things fell into place as I was going along that um, uh, kind of were meant for me to be there. And so I, I accepted that responsibility willingly and used it for other work that I did with judges in terms of training judges and training lawyers. I think I know everything about you. And then at one point, I didn't know you did that pediatric inquiry. I can't imagine what it would have been like doing an inquiry, especially when babies are involved. But it's all the behind the scenes work, too, that you do that people don't see the educational training for judges, for example, or just the informal mentorship and advice and guidance you give people in addition to all of this formal stuff. It's just it's just incredible. Uh, given the the amount that goes into it. And one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that you also do all this from having been grounded in your culture, um, because I understand that you are the fourth chief of the Medewan Society. Is that is that the case? Yes. Yes. Um, the um, Three Fires Lodge of the Medewan Society has four chiefs and one in the northern doorway, the the center fire, the eastern doorway, and the western doorway. I'm the chief of the western doorway. And how does that how does that make a difference, do you think, compared to, say, other people, maybe non-native judges who don't come from that very specific, you know, ceremonial, cultural, deep spiritual background? Well, it's interesting that um, uh, most judges are not aware of the degree to which they have a spiritual uh, connection or spiritual essence. They just assume that um, their sense of God, their sense of creation, their sense of uh, 
spirituality is just natural. You know, it's not like they think about it. They're not like they have to work for it. Uh, as indigenous people, we had to work to recover our uh, traditional knowledge and our traditional beings and traditional selves. Um, we had to work to regain our self-respect. And so uh, as a result, we we hold it very precious. We hold it uh, very dear to us. And uh, more so than the, than the, the non uh, indigenous judges do. Uh, I think there are many, uh, I don't want to belittle anybody, but I think there are many who are, in fact, quite uh, religious and quite spiritual in their own way. But they, um, the extent to which they, they um, work to live it uh, in the same way that I do is different because I know that it's important that I uh, extend my knowledge of what is traditional, what the ceremonies are, what the traditional teachings and the history is, uh, is important to the young people coming up behind me because they don't know that. Uh, they don't receive that in the public schools and the, the society around them. And so when they go searching for that knowledge, um, they go searching generally for elders who know that information. And, and, uh, and I've had a number of Young lawyers in particular, uh, young professionals to a large extent, uh, come to me and ask me to answer their questions or to help them understand their role or help them uh, just learn how to be a better person. That's the part. There's like a disconnect between anyone who's, who who say, says they have a spirituality or a religion or whatever between you know what you say you're committed to versus what your actions are deep inside the actions that people don't see but also the ones that they do see and you've always been so kind-hearted and patient and gentle in your critique especially valuable critique you've you lead people along in such a loving and supportive way and i can only imagine what that would be like on an inquiry or a commission like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because then you're trying to share your, you know, empathy and understanding and support with everybody who participated. And, you know, I, I have to, I have to ask because I'm, I can only assume that with all of these inquiries and commissions and investigations, that must take a huge personal toll. Well, having a, a, a good sense of. Uh spiritual connection helps a great deal um, because it's uh, the one thing I learned early on is that uh, being able to participate in uh, a ceremony is a, is a very strengthening process and it it helps you to be a better person it helps you to be a better judge be a better lawyer be a better human being at whatever it is that you're doing uh, because uh, each time that you, participate with elders, they reaffirm um, your humanity, they reaffirm what you have, they um, confirm that you are valid, they, they give you that sense of grounding, and, uh, and then they send you back out into the world to do the work that you were intended to do. Um, learning my name, for example, was in Egyptian, um, when, uh, when I uh, knew I had that name, I went in search of understanding what it meant. And uh, and I was told uh, a story about my name, Mizinagizik. It literally means pictures in the sky. 
And I kind of wondered what that meant. And it's a story of a, uh, there's always a story behind spirit names. And uh, and the story behind my name is that it, it talks about a, a young man who went out searching for answers so that he could help his people who were uh, in conflict and who were in need and who were uh, not able to deal with their difficulties. And uh, so he went in search of answers by talking to the creator. And so he went into a, a place where he could speak to the creator and he spoke to the creator in many ways, but the creator never spoke to him, never talked back to him. And he was getting angrier and angrier as he sat there because the creator was not responding to his prayers and to his words. And uh, as he's sitting there, uh, according to the story, a little bowl pops up out of the ground and says, uh, hey, brother, what are you yelling about? Like, what's going on? And so the young man told the bowl what he was there for and what he was um, trying to do. And the, the bowl said, you know that you're an idiot. He said, because uh, the creator's answering you. All you have to do is look up there and see what he's telling you in those pictures that he's putting in front of you. And you have to figure out what those pictures mean and how to use them. And as he looked up, he could see the shapes of the clouds and the formation of the star world and the formation of that the, the trees were taking and the birds were showing him as they flew over. And he realized that uh, in their actions, there was communication. And so he paid close attention to what he was being shown by those beings and those, uh, those things in the sky. And it helped him to center himself, but it also helped him to figure out what it was that he could do and what it was that he needed to tell the people. And so it helped him be a better Anishinaabe, but it also uh, gave him the messages that he had to take back. And so that's my name. And that's uh, the name that I have aspired to fulfill uh, all of my adult existence and going back to when I was a, a young boy in high school uh, without even knowing that it meant that. Um, and so uh, as a result, when I look back at my life, I, I look back at the fact that uh, I was always doing that, but I just didn't know it. And now that I know it, uh, I use that knowledge about the spirit name process to teach other young indigenous people uh, the importance of knowing your spirit name because your spirit that comes to you from the creator has a purpose. And if you know what the teaching is behind the name, then you know what the purpose of the spirit is. And that's that purpose is your purpose as well. And I think that kind of teaching, knowing about that, you know, the journey about your spirit name and the teachings behind it. I can't help but think about all of the kids, you know, or even adults today who don't know the story behind their spirit name or don't have a spirit name because all of the work that Canada did to separate us from our language and culture. And then, you know, how hard it is for parents or grandparents to pass it down, but then how, how important it is. Like I've, I've always thought, you know, 
it's never too late to reconnect to your culture, to the teachings, to the life lessons, because look, look at what it's done for you. And I think that's so important when we see people out there advocating and doing important work to understand how much stronger and uh, I guess thoughtful someone would be if you have that background and understand what your purpose is, because wow, you've you've just done so, so much for other people in terms of, you know, residential schools, or it could be, you know, the parents or communities dealing with unmarked graves, you know, everything that you've done is, is really giving back. And, and I think one of the core messages I get from you every time is that it's not our fault. We didn't do this. We're not lesser than because we were disconnected, for example, and that there's there's always a path forward. And it's actually that reconnection that's so important. And I really appreciate the work that you do in that area, because I can't think like kids always ask me, kids, younger people always ask me, how do you deal with your challenges? Like you went to school, you know, K to 12 or whatever the it was back then at a time when it was a little more hostile for indigenous peoples. And one of the questions I get from students, especially in high school who are thinking about university is how did you deal with all of the challenges when you were younger and maybe not quite as wise uh, any challenges that you got, whether it's, it's racism or bullying or even just exclusion or non-representation or not seeing people there or seeing it, covered in a you know difficult way what would you say to these kids in high school who are saying how do you deal with those challenges and not get discouraged and just say forget it yeah, when when they ask me that question I, I hear those questions as well when they ask me those questions I always start off by telling them even if you knew all of your culture even if you knew all of that information that you are lacking right now you would still be facing these challenges. These challenges don't go away just because you know more. These challenges are always going to be in front of you. And even when you are um, fully aware of who you are and your culture and what your culture is and what your teachings are and your history is, uh, you are still going to face those challenges. So recognize that um, the strength that we have lost has been the strength of being able to utilize our cultural knowledge, our cultural awareness, our uh, spiritual strength to be able to deal with these challenges. And and so uh, when you can gain that, well, what you gain that spiritual strength, uh, don't be afraid to, to allow it to help you. Uh, when I was younger, I was raised by my grandmother, as I told you that, my grandparents. My grandmother had gone to a residential school and had been raised on the on the convent side, not in the residential school side, because her father dedicated her to the church. Um, and so as an Anishinaabe girl, she was raised to become an Anishinaabe nun. And uh, so she grew up believing quite strongly and quite fervently in the church's teachings about God and spirituality. And when uh, we went to live with her. Uh, she made it very clear that she had aspirations for me to be a priest. And so she saw to it that uh, I received some uh, extra work from Jesuit brothers and uh, 
and uh, some sisters, uh, some nuns, who would um, help me understand our relationship to Christ, our relationship to God and the Creator, understand the Bible, understand those words. And some of that, uh, that understanding helped me cope with some of those things that were uh, that we're dealing with, but I, I inherently knew that that was not our teaching. I inherently knew that there was something more to my existence than that. But I did utilize them to help me cope with what I was having to deal with. And many of our people today, you do that. They try to do to use that connection to the church to cope with the challenges that they face. And uh, I have always said that we should never criticize our people who are following Christianity, as long as they are following it in its true form, you know, in the way it was meant uh, to be uh, followed by the people. Um, if they are true to the teachings of the uh, of, of Jesus, then they will understand what it means to be a better human being. Uh, but uh, some of them don't. I, I understand that, but um, they, if you if you do pick up on that, and if you do utilize that, then it helps you get through those difficult challenges that you will face. And it was when I gave up on utilizing that in my lifetime that I kind of lost my way for a while. Um, but I regained it through elders uh, when I went to see them. Uh, I met, um, at that time, the elders who were coming into our communities to give us that knowledge were usually American elders, uh, Philip Deere and, uh, and people like that, who would come up and do seminars and workshops they called youth, youth elder workshops. And so I would go to them, and uh, I would understand their connection to the Creator, uh, was the kind of connection that was truer to my sense of self than what I had been uh, following or attempting to follow. And so I embraced that more. And so by the time um, my son was born, my first child was born, uh, I knew that I had to give him more than I had grown up with as a young boy. And so I even more fervently went into uh, attending ceremonies, participating in ceremonies, learning about our teachings, learning about our history, and working with elders to answer the questions that I had. And um, and so that uh, not only helped me be a better father to him, but it also helped me to be a better uncle to all those other children that I would meet along the way. And I guess that's the the important thing at the end of the day is all of these tools that help you better understand yourself, uh, live better a life, be a better person, have all of those important connections. And I, I, I just feel so sad for people who don't have any of that, like no sense of self or spirituality right now because of all of the things that have happened. And so all of these messages about you know, finding your way. I think it's so important because like you said, there never comes a point when you now know enough about everything that there's no challenges in the future. I mean, you can't know everything, but even if you thought you did, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be challenges and some of them pretty significant. So I think that's a really good message. 
And I know like for, for my part, I have been trying to follow people that represented, you know, people who love other people, who care about people, who, who push judgment aside and be the soft place to fall for people with understanding and compassion. And one of the first times that I heard you or, or even heard your name, because I'm from the Maritimes, not Manitoba, was when you were the co-chair of the Aboriginal uh, Justice Inquiry of Manitoba. And it was the first time I had heard about Helen Betty Osborne, because you know how media was back then, tended to be localized. Those kinds of things generally didn't get national attention. It was the first. And, you know, when I look back now, I'm thinking, you know, of all the media around murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, for example, it, there wasn't that same media frenzy back then that made people aware about what was going on. It People seemed to think it was an isolated incident. But I, I've read that report, I don't know how many times, because you actually speak to violence against Native women, um, their exclusion from their communities because of sex discrimination in the Indian Act. And there wasn't really anything major at the time or even before that, that was had comments specific to Native women and their experiences at the hands of the justice system or domestic violence in their home or being excluded legally because of what Canada has said. And I kept referring back to that, both the conversation you had about violence and sex discrimination in the Indian Act and your recommendations. And over the years, I kept thinking, why isn't the government picking up on this? This is like a huge inquiry. This is so much significant on a whole bunch of bases. Yes, police racism and violence against Native men, you know, bad back then and and J.J. Harper and everything that happened with the Winnipeg police. Why? Why didn't they pick it up back then? And some people would might have been discouraged, you know, by that. But you just kept going. You kept going and, and being involved in really important inquiries and commissions and issues. And you kept educating with patience and also with the sense of urgency. So patience doesn't mean, you know, slowness, but it was urgent. You're trying to get this message across. And so you're one of the reasons, in fact, why I took my, my I did my doctorate in law specifically on sex discrimination in the Indian Act and just how harmful it is to tell women that they're lesser than or lower than that and their them and their kids aren't included. And so I have to wonder, like, how many other people have you impacted and their work that way? that like you just don't know about there's obviously the official stuff but were you ever frustrated after that report about the lack of consistent and substantive action not just you know picking around the edges but on things like violence in racism in policing or violence against native women yes i i, I think uh, it is fair to say that there's a level of frustration that i did reach um, but it would only spur me on to uh, figure out ways I could um, pressure the parties who were involved or the individuals who were involved or the ones who could do things to actually do something. And and I would often um, contact people. Um, I've spoken to the prime minister many times. I've spoken to the various cabinet members who are working on various uh, files that relate to Indigenous issues, um, both at the provincial level and uh, 
uh, federal level. I, I speak to them sometimes even when they don't want to hear from me um, in order to communicate to them that um, there is a better way than what they're doing. And uh, the hard part is often to get them to recognize that the current way of doing business is not only inadequate, but it's harmful. And so getting them to actually turn their minds to the harm that they are doing, even uh, when accompanied by their sense of benevolence, is not fulfilling their obligation or their responsibility to uh, move in the proper direction towards reconciliation or towards the establishment of a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, what I have often said is that, uh, you know, uh, reconciliation is about establishing a mutually respectful relationship. But before we get there, we have to understand the importance of self-respect so that uh, mutual respect is important, but the self-respect for in Indigenous children, Indigenous people, is the first step in that path because we took so long to destroy it. And you can't suddenly ask people um, who are on the one side, uh, the people on one side who have benefited from this uh, uh, incredibly long period of oppressing uh, and then turn to the victims of that oppression and say, all right, sorry, we did that to you. Now let's be friends. Um, because uh, what you have taken from their, what you've taken from them by your oppression often is their ability to be your friend. And you need to understand that. So, um, strengthening and allowing ind Indigenous people to strengthen themselves in, uh, in a positive way is, is right now the most important part of reconciliation. So when I look at, um, at the fact that there has been so little action or so such small steps that have been taken in the path to reconciliation, uh, I'm not measuring um, I'm not measuring our progress by those government steps or by those church steps. I'm measuring progress in the sense of are our children feeling better about themselves? Are we changing the way that we um, deal with people who are caught in the court system? Are we changing the way that we um, are relating to each other as Indigenous people, as man and woman, as, as parent and child? Uh, because those are the issues around self-respect that we first of all need to enhance. And so uh, it's, it's in those areas that I try to focus my thinking and my efforts. Uh, I could spend a lot of time, you know, flying to Ottawa and going to meetings there, but I prefer to spend more time going into classrooms and, mm. and working with youth groups and, you know, working with homeless groups. You know, I, I'm sort of at that age now where I can't walk the streets anymore and, uh, and uh, carry things and give out to homeless. So I, I give them money. I give them what money I can in order to support their efforts. Uh, I'm a big fan and supporter of Mama Bear uh, clan here in Winnipeg, which uh, uh, takes care of homeless people, uh, homeless Indigenous people particularly. And, uh, and also 
you know, my kids will be <laughs> the first to tell you that they don't like traveling with me when I'm driving through the city because if I see a homeless guy standing on the corner, I'll always give him money, um, uh, particularly if he's an, an indigenous guy. Um, and so I've often had cars behind me honking away to get moving. Um, but, uh, you know, and then when I worked in the Senate, uh, the staff always knew to make sure that uh, I had about uh, 10 or $20 in, in change in my pocket when I walked to the Senate building because I always stopped and gave people. But I wouldn't just give them money. I would stop and talk to them and ask mm-hmm. them, where are, you, where are you from? Are you doing okay? You know, is there something I can do to help you get back home or is there something I can do to help you find somebody? And so I would do that. And it would take what would normally be a 10-minute walk from my office to the Senate building, about an hour and a half sometimes, just because of that. And uh, and I enjoyed that. I, you know, I enjoyed it in the sense that um, I knew that and, and people would criticize me for doing that, for wasting all that money, for giving that money away. And I would say, you know, um, if that were my daughter or my son on the street, I would hope that you would do that for them. Because that's really uh, the test of kindness, is can you find a way to do that for other people's children? And I think about... You know, the the people on the street or the people that are precariously housed, you know, are in trouble with the law or any of these things. The first thing that always comes to my mind is they know what other people are thinking of them and that they'll never have the time or the opportunity to say, but, you know, here's my circumstances. Here's how hard I've tried or these are the things that happen. So they sit there and they know that they're being judged or or ignored. And so that a little bit of talking to people and giving them money, I always think, okay, if I was in a situation where I was living on the street because I didn't have any money and it happens to lots of people, would I want someone to give me 20 bucks so I can go into that store and buy enough food to have meals? Would I want someone to talk to me because it's so lonely being ignored all the time? And of course I would. And, and my kids, oh my gosh, when my kids were teenagers, I was like, please let everything go. Okay. Because you know what society is like and, and it's even dangerous for them, especially here in cities like Toronto. So I find that being the non-judgmental soft place to fall for native people is really changing a mindset even of some native people even some native people judge yes. some yes. of our people that are hard like that are having a hard time and i think that's obviously something we adopted from a different place in a different time but it's something i think we also need to look at you know mm-hmm. what are we doing on the inside because that is so important treating people like human beings and trying to, you know, I don't know your circumstances, but are you okay? Do you need some money for food? What can I do? One of the things, one of the other things that I've noticed about your work in particular that I find differs from other, say, official reports or legal judgments, inquiries, or commissions on other issues is that you've always made sure to include the rights and interests and issues of Indigenous women. So it wasn't just in general, here's treaty rights, or it wasn't just in general racism by police against Indigenous men, but you always 
found a way to include that in the Aboriginal Manitoba Justice Inquiry. I mean, in the TRC, how could you not? Because there's like little girls in residential schools, but the theft of children from women is just such a profound pain uh, that no, a thousand stories could never really address. But in, in, in everything that you say, and I, and I noticed that, you know, it, it wasn't always picked up all the time, you know, from the Justice Inquiry in Manitoba, but it's something that's been very important that the women's perspective and the unique pain or the unique experiences of women is so important because we've got the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls, but so many of these issues cross over. Like, you must have found that there's a huge crossover and issues from the Aboriginal Manitoba Justice Inquiry to, you know, Truth and Reconciliation, Murdered and Missing, uh, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. I mean, it's not like some, some of these reports obviously are specializing in a particular area, but you can't actually separate these issues from one another, can you? Oh, no, absolutely not. In fact, you can't really separate them from yourself either. Um, <clears throat> you know, they, the, the topic of um, Indigenous women was important to me because I was raised in a house full of women. I was raised, as I said, by my grandmother, but there were eight aunties in the house at the same time. And, uh, and so we were constantly reminded as little boys, me and my brother, uh, we were constantly reminded of uh, our responsibility to be respectful to our aunties and to be considerate of them and to help them all the time. Uh, and then uh, when I um, started having children, um, well, my first uh, child was a boy, Nigan. Uh, all the rest of them are girls. And so I have uh, four daughters. And uh, I have one grandson and uh, two grandsons and two granddaughters. And so, you know, I, I talked earlier about the... Um, the pediatric cardiac surgery inquiry, the majority of children who died at the hands of that surgeon were, were young little girls. And uh, and that's what made it hard was because um, as, a, as a Muslim, I have such an affinity for little grandchildren, little granddaughters. Um, I tell them the biggest lies. I sing them the songs. And so, uh, and I find that they're, uh, probably more uh, eager to connect uh, with uh, me than uh, the grand uh, the grandsons are because they grandsons tend to kind of be more independent and want to be left alone to their own devices. But I uh, I, I think that there's a special relationship as well that Indigenous men have to show. Have to have the indigenous women. Their responsibility as protectors of the women um, can't be taken too far because women are quite capable of taking care of themselves. But we have to stop the, the systemic uh, limitations that we're placing upon women, mm -hmm. and by men. And we must never forget that while well, things are more equal in the pre creationary time, um, over the last 150 years, uh, since Confederation, there's been a tremendous um, 
influenced by Western society for indigenous men to assume that they're the ones in charge and that what they say goes and that uh, indigenous women are just there to serve them. And that's stupid. Uh, it's the craziest thing that um, uh, that I've heard of in my, my days and yet um, men embrace it and young men are embracing it too because they see leaders are doing those things. And, and that's not self-responsible leadership. Uh, and of course, it, part of it is that uh, the Indian Act, which created the process of leadership that existed since 1870 or so, uh, only allowed indigenous men to hold office and to be in position of leadership. Women uh, couldn't hold office and weren't recognized in any capacity, even in the traditional uh, societies their societies were often the first ones to attack. And that makes such a profound difference when you can, you know, emulate as a man and have relationships with little girls, with young women, with your family, all the, you know, aunties and cousins in your family, because they may or may not be getting it somewhere else, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that like a good positive relationship between men and women is so important, especially since, I mean, I don't need to tell you everything Canada has done to send the message that women are included. They're lesser than no one cares about what's happening to them. We can just take their kids at will. We can sterilize them at will. And then after so many generations, that's bound to sink in. And, you know, like you said before, we, we are still trying to get our ourselves out of all of this. And so what I, one of the things I really like about you is that anyone I talk to uh, about you, they always say, you're their grandfather, you're like their grandfather, because you just have that wise, kind, loving way about you. And so you know, you've, you've done your work in sending those messages, not just the legal ones and the ones from the report, but actually those personal ones about here's how you behave, here's how you treat people, and and all of that. And it seems to me, and I wonder, actually, did you ever imagine that you would come full circle from the time when you started the Aboriginal Manitoba Justice Inquiry about sex discrimination in the Indian Act, for example, that you would come all the way full circle to be a senator and then literally have amendments to Indian registration under the Indian Act dealing with sex discrimination, like, and to have such a profound influence on that? Did you ever see that that would happen? Well, it was an ambition, and uh, yeah, I I was pretty convinced uh, when I went to the Senate that that was going to be one of the um, uh, things that I that I would work on and and that I would support because uh, you know there was already Indigenous leadership, you know, Lily and Dick was already there, and uh, and there were other Indigenous women in the Senate when I arrived, but they were um, fighting against a male bastion. And so I made it a point to um, get in front of them and not as their leader, but as their protector to get out there and smash heads with the, all the other male senators. And, um, and I think they'll tell you that I'd probably do a pretty good job because uh, there were a lot of people who were, 
afraid of getting into a debate with me, you know. Um, I can remember, uh, and I'll tell you a little story if you don't mind. I can remember a um, debate that we were having uh, with uh, senators from uh, one of the political parties about the whole question of uh, um, consent uh, for uh, in the in the UN declaration and in re- reasonable consent, and so. Uh, and he, he, you know, he kept going on and on about, you know, um, you know, you can't, uh, you can't give them the right to consent because then the projects will be just banned forever. They'll never go ahead. And I said, well, obviously, Senator, you don't understand the concept of consent, and that that, that doesn't speak well to your relationship with people, because here's here's how we should define consent and understand consent. I said, so if you want to have sex with me, you need my consent. And if I tell you I don't want to have sex with you, then I'm withholding my consent. But that doesn't mean you can't go and have sex with some other guy. I don't mind that at all. And that doesn't ban you from having sex with another guy. <laughs> so this, this, uh, all of the people within that caucus, of course, were all homophobic. And so I knew that would have a particularly touching um, <laughs> impact. But it made my point. You know, my, my point was that this issue of, of consent is one that they needed to understand better. And they needed to understand it in the context, not just of uh, the UN Declaration, but also in the context of human relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, uh, you know, the issue of consent also came up when we were discussing uh, amendments to the criminal code, and uh, we were discussing changing the wording of the uh, national anthem, uh, and the the fact that there was sexism within the wording of our national anthem. Anthem, and they, you know, they refused to see it. They would speak as though they couldn't see it, but I knew that they knew it was there. They just were being uh, obtuse. Yeah. And so the thing is to to pull away their clothes and show that as emperors, as little emperors, they had no clothes, uh, <laughs> was really what that process was all about. And and so I remember that uh, Lillian, uh, Senator Dick, came to me afterwards and said, that was the most amazing definition of consent I've ever heard. <laughs> well, you're welcome to use it anytime you want. <laughs> That's awesome because I always wondered why do only Native people have an impoverished definition of consent? You need medical consent, you need consent for field trips, you need consent for sex. You don't get to say for sex, hey, do I have your consent? No. Okay, well, I'll take that into account, but we're going to have sex anyway. Like, it's only native people that have that. And I just, I don't think there'll ever be a Senate like the one with you and Lillian and Sandra Lovelace and Kim Pate and all of these like uh, McCallum, like everybody. It's just so hardcore. That's, it's going to be a historical point in time because you guys got so much stuff done. And it was like, we could hear it and see it on TV all the time. It just, it really gave us a boost that, you know, for all the critique of Senate and senators and whether they're appointed or not, like that aside, all of that stuff for us, it's like, oh, look at this hardcore group of independents who are truly acting independent. And I think a lot of us 
would love to have that more from government instead of being so focused on being liberal and not conservative or conservative and not NDP. If we could just see these issues from a human standpoint, boy, we would be so much better. And, you know, like I know we're just wrapping up, but I also wanted to point out for people who might not have followed you, you have always been at the forefront of all of the major issues that are happening. You actually didn't shy away. So when, you know, defund the police and challenging police racism and and killings and violence, brutality, targeting, profiling, carding, and all of that other stuff, such a controversial, complex, heated issue, you get asked to be part of the Thunder Bay Services Board, you know, Police Services Board investigation. And instead of saying, whoa, that's just that's, you know, dynamite. You're like, yeah, I will do this. And I always wonder like, wow, do you ever have any reservations about mm, this might not be a good idea? Oh, um, well, the only, th the only time I hesitated to, to do anything was the TRC. And that was because I was so yeah. emotionally drained by the pediatric uh, inquiry, which had Literally, it had been about almost 10 years earlier. So that's the impact that looking at the deaths of babies can have on you. And, and it was uh, a burden that I was still carrying 10 years later. But that's the only time I hesitated to do anything. Um, but, you know, even then, I, I knew that, um, that I should do it. Uh, but my question that I asked myself is, um, am I going to be able to do it right? Yeah. And I concluded that I would probably not be able to. Uh, didn't know that I could. And so I was uncertain. And so that's why I hesitated and recommended others. And then when I saw what happened, then mm -hmm. I thought, now I have to do it. And I, mm -hmm. I, have to, I have to not look back. I have to do it. And um, so uh, I went ahead full steam when I, when I did it. And, you know, we received a lot of criticisms. We had a lot of pressure, a lot of fighting from the churches and the government. Um, and uh, I had to go to a lot of meetings and, uh, and throw my weight around and you know, threaten people. <laughs> so we had to go to court seven times during the uh, TRC process in order to challenge the government. So. Wow. It's incredible. It's incredible. We, we can't afford not to. And it's the same, I guess, for everything that you've worked on. And so I guess my my last question is what's next? Because I've seen or heard from a few little birdies that there might be some memoirs, a book coming out. And I've also seen you sitting on a motorcycle and I'm a motorcyclist. So I was like, oh, he's even a thousand times cooler than I already thought he was. So what's next for you? Is it is it going to be more focused on this memoir and just relaxing? Well, I, I, I do have to, um, uh, as, as uh, some of your uh, audience might know, I just recently had a boat uh, in the hospital uh, and I've been diagnosed with congenital uh, congestive heart failure. And so... Um, the doctors have said they caught it in the early stages and they're, they're able to treat it and they're very positive that things are going to turn out well. But uh, as I'm leaving the hospital, the doctor said, the main prescription I want you to follow is retire better. 
okay, I'll figure out what that means. <laughs> so, um, so the first thing I did was I got my assistant to just clear everything off my calendar. So I've got no nothing on my calendar that I have to do. Um, and uh, and that, uh, interestingly, has allowed me to take uh, a closer look at my memoirs because I had started writing my memoirs uh, when I was just leaving the Senate. And, uh, and then I um, kind of developed a framework around what the, I thought the memoirs were going to look like and started writing and filling things in. And, and so... Uh, I've picked up on that a bit now and gone back to it. And uh, I find it very relaxing, actually, um, to to do it. Um, sometimes it's a little emotionally challenging because I'm remembering people and events that um, I, I sort of put in the back of my, my uh, memory. But that's what memoirs, any memoir that's uh, worth reading has got that element to it. And so, uh, so that's what I'm really working on right now. And then uh, every summer I take that bike out and I go scooting around at least once a day. I try to ride it for somewhere. And <laughs> I don't like going on the highway, mainly because most uh, people on the highway don't respect people on bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like riding on country roads and I'll go into towns and villages and just kind of see what places are like because uh, I grew up in this area and I'm back home in my home territory and uh, so I drive around and you know see somebody's house that I remember and so often stop in and just say hi is so-and-so still living here and uh, and occasionally they are and often they're not but uh, just checking Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to get on my motorcycle and drive to Manitoba and find you on these back roads in the summer because that's just the the most awesome thing I heard. Whether or not the doctor approves, who knows? But I really am glad that you uh, do other things too that are for you because if you were just all work and it looks like, you know, from the outside, you just never stop your machine. Um it's, it's nice to hear that you're going to have memoirs because it's also going to be so historical. Like I have a thousand more questions for you and hopefully they'll all be answered in these memoirs. And, <laughs> and I'm glad that the doctor caught your health condition early because we need you around for another, you know, 30, 40 years or so. And you just, everything you do is just so important and all the love coming from you, from me to you, all the support, you know, anything you ever need, you know, I'm here. Um, Love everything you do, of course, and thank you for everything that you do because part of the work that you've done made sure that my kids were registered under the Indian Act or that people even paid attention to it. Like your voice carries so much power, you could have just ignored it and not even spoken to it and said, ah, oh, that's someone else's issue. And that alone would have had such a drastic consequence or UNDRIP, you know, like your voice on UNDRIP. You helped convince me that you know and dispel some of the myths that were going around and i had concerns but then after talking to you it's like ah should have talked to him a long time ago so thank you for everything that you do um we all love you i know all the listeners are gonna love you and i can't wait to see you on your motorcycle again make sure you take lots of pictures put like those gopros on your helmet or something (laughs) 
Uh, well, and let me say in, in, uh, in closing as well that uh, I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for you too and the work that you're doing. I think that you're one of our truly great leaders now and in the future. And uh, I do wish you well, and I hope that you keep up your hard work as well to not only educate Indigenous people, but the general public, and also to get out there and kick butt from time to time. So that's important. <laughs> thank you. That means a lot to me. You just made my lifetime. Um, and thank you to all of the listeners who are listening on the Warrior Life podcast. Thank you to all the viewers who are watching it on YouTube for always listening, learning, and doing whatever you can to support Native people in substantive, concrete ways every day it's we're in this relationship forever so reconciliation has to be a lifelong project and you couldn't learn more than listening to the honorable murray sinclair who is doctor times 19 so thank you all i'll put links to all of the reports that he's been a part of some of his socials so that you can follow him sometimes he makes very humorous comments or shares really awesome pictures of him on his motorcycle and i'm sure you all want to join the fan club so thank you all. Um, till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. Very good.